said to Abraham, leave your country, your people, and your father's household, and go to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So Abraham left, as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abraham was 75 years old when he set out. The reason I did this activity and the reason I think it speaks to these verses is because, um, this is maybe a sign of my education, for me the word God is just a sign, it's just a few squiggles that we might put on a piece of paper or a sequence of sounds that might come out of our mouth. And that word does not come with its meaning attached. When we hear the word, we don't automatically all have access to an identical understanding of what that word means. This is the beauty and the danger of words. They reveal and they conceal. When we hear the word God, because it's the same word as the word that you use, when someone else uses it, this is the same word as the word that you might use, God. It's easy to think this is, we're talking about the same thing. But as these pictures reveal, that is not necessarily the case. Even in a community like this, where we might have, broadly speaking, a shared understanding of who God is, there is still incredible diversity in terms of the words that that word conjures up, the images that that word conjures up. And I think that is incredibly important in a community, to understand that. To understand that behind words can be very different understandings from one person to the next. And it's not enough, in fact it's dangerous, to just assume that when I use the word and you use the word, we're talking about the same thing. In fact, when a Muslim uses the word Allah, they may well be talking about something which is much closer to what I mean by God than what my neighbour Andrew means when he uses the word God. I remember uh, sitting in a bus in Canada once when the Soccer World Cup was on years ago. The Canadian girl and an English girl talking together, and the Canadian girl said, have you been watching the Soccer World Cup? And the English girl said, um, no, um, I've been watching the Football World Cup. And the Canadian girl said, What there are there two World Cups going on at the moment? Uh, yeah, I guess so, said the English girl. So where's the where's the football world cup? It's in France. No, the same. The soccer world cup's there at the same time. And uh, at that point I turned around and said, You're talking about <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Words can reveal and words can conceal. And when we, when we look at these verses, the first words of these verses that says, the Lord, the Lord, it's easy for us to project onto the Lord everything that we understand about the Lord, everything that we understand about God from the rest of the Bible, from church that we grew up in, from our culture, from our education, from our families. 
And I think that that's quite a dangerous thing to do because it can conceal from us and obscure for us how radical these verses are. Because when the Lord spoke to Abram, or Abram, Abram didn't go, oh, it's you. It's the creator of all things. It's the saviour of all things. It's the father of Jesus. It is the God who at the end of all time will recreate the heavens and recreate the earth. He had none of that. It's easy for us to look at it and go, okay, Abraham instantly recognized and understood that all of these things were true of this God that was speaking to him. But Abraham doesn't have the Bible. Abraham doesn't have any of that understanding. It's really more like, for us, entrenched in our culture, with our family, with our religion, with our education, having some supernatural apparition of being appear before us whose name is, let's say, God. And God says to us, I want you to leave everything that you know. I want you to leave everything that you know. I want you to leave your culture. I want you to leave your family. I want you to leave everything that your, your education has taught you. I want you to leave your gods behind. And I want you to travel to a place that you do not know. To people that you do not know. To a foreign land. I mean, the closest we get to that is maybe those emails from Nigeria. <laughs> people say, give me a few thousand dollars and I'll give you a fortune. These big promises from out of the blue. And you would think, given that, the most natural response for Abram, living in a, a remember, a polytheistic culture, there are gods everywhere at this time. There are mountain gods, there are personal gods, there are all sorts of gods. And for this one god to come and speak to Abraham and give him these promises, it would be easy for him to say, oh, who are you? Who are you? How can I trust these promises? Why would I leave everything that I know to follow a god that I don't know? And in a way, the bigger the promises, the more likely you are not to trust this God. So why did he? Is the question. Once we peel back all our assumptions about God, you know, this is the real God, and then he's following God, so of course when he encounters the real God, he's going to follow the real God. But when you peel all that away, you go, here are the gods that he knows, and then another God that he doesn't know, he just makes these promises and then makes this incredible design. Leave everything, you know, and come to a new land. So why did he do it? If any of the Any thoughts? Make you do it. Yeah. So, 
obviously an incredibly powerful experience. So not just a kind of a intellectual email, prehistorical email experience, but just something, yeah, a whole, yeah. 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 Maybe there is in Abram a, a courageous sense of adventure that where the, it's almost like a provocation by our women. Yeah, so it's 75 or yeah, it's, it's getting on. Um, and yeah, so maybe there is a sense of um, you know, life is disappointed that everything kind of nothing's paid off that the gods that he has are not delivered. Now it's interesting when he leaves, he takes a lot of stuff with him, so he's a pretty wealthy man. Convicted by the Holy Spirit. So the, the question is, wouldn't he have some knowledge of God that had been passed down? It's interesting when you look at the chapters before, um, Abraham, Abraham is uh, ten generations after um, this, after Noah. So he's, the, the Bible suggests that he's this kind of tenth generation direct descendant of Noah. Um, so on the one hand you would say that he's in this lineage where there's a connection to the, the God's action in the past, and yet at the same time, his, his father, Terah, is clearly an idolater, has clearly given away any, any vestige or any inkling of that history and that inheritance. I think by the time you get to Abram's father, that's, that's gone, and he has Terah, Abram's father, has started to worship the idols and the gods of the culture that he lived So, um, from God's perspective, there is this continuity, and, and I think it's important to the writers of Genesis and important to God that there is this continuity. But as far as Abraham is concerned, I, I don't, I don't know, but I, I doubt that there is any real tradition of connection to, uh, to the God. Of the world. Said that I think, in a sense, the Holy Spirit, that sense of a full encounter. I, I think there may be many other reasons why this was the right time, why God chose this time to talk to Abram. But I think probably the heart of it is is exactly that that this incredible encounter, this whole person encounter, where God's Spirit spoke to His Spirit in a way that convicted Him. Um, and later we see that, um, that that faith, that conviction was accredited to him by God as righteousness. But um, I guess what's, what's incredibly provocative here and radical 
is, is exactly that. But what we're talking about is not someone reading the whole um, of, a, of a holy text and coming to a rational decision that this is about truth, but it's about a person encountering God directly and the Spirit of God speaking, convicting directly their spirit and leading them to, to faith and obedience. What's equally provocative for me is that when you jump forward to, uh, to Jesus, um, I'm thinking of John 8, where Jesus is talking to the Pharisees, and the Pharisees are saying, you know, we are the children of Abraham. So um, we have no doubt about our salvation, we have no doubt about our standing with God. And Jesus says to them, the way you treat me, the way you respond to me, makes it clear that you are not the children of Abraham, that you are the children of the devil. So on the one hand, you have Abraham who has no scripture, but who through his encounter with, with God comes to this saving faith. And then on the other hand, you have all those years later, you have the children of Abraham, the Jews, who have scripture. They have all the revelation of God that we see in the Old Testament. And yet, in their response to Jesus, we see that that familiarity with Scripture, and these people, the Pharisees knew their Scripture incredibly well, but that does not mean that they recognize Jesus. That they recognize the Son of God who's come to earth. It's incredibly provocative stuff for us because it's easy for us to look back at the Pharisees and say, How do they not have recognized? Jesus. And yet for us it's the same question. If we we know scripture, if we read the Bible, that is not a guarantee that we have encountered God, that we know God. It is God's Spirit. That leads us to that encounter. It's God's spirit that speaks to our spirit. That leads us into a saving relationship with God. That leads us to recognize who Jesus is. John Calvin, the reformed theologian, said that human, the human heart is an idol-making machine. And I think that for all of us, there is a constant danger to lean on our own understanding, to become complacent, to think because of my knowledge, because of my wisdom, I have contained God. I know God. I have contained God. God is, God is mine. I choose to share God. I choose to withhold God, but God is mine. There's, there's a danger, there's always a danger in our lives that we turn the God that we find in Christ into an idol. We turn the Bible into an idol, something that we control. And I guess this is where the difference that we see in our pictures is crucial for us. If we rely on our own understanding, if we 
live in a community where I assume that my understanding of God is the same as everyone else's, then I cut myself off from what God's Spirit has to teach me through my community. When I encounter difference, when I encounter aspects of God, truth about God in another person that I don't have, then I am drawn like Abram out of my idolatry, out of my complacency, out of my resting on my hands, and I'm drawn out into the constant, radical newness of God, the living God. And if we don't seek what it is of God that our community has to teach us, don't hear me diminishing the Bible. I mean, when Jesus talked to the Pharisees and he told them, you are the sons, you are the children of Satan, not the children of Abraham. That's not him tossing out the Old Testament saying it's irrelevant, it has nothing to teach. Jesus respected the Old Testament more than anyone. The difference is that he understood that there was a God behind the Bible that was bigger than the Bible and that was a living God that had to be encountered and not controlled by a use of scripture. Let me give you an example to ground this place. Unless you have questions, I warned you at the beginning. <laughs> I'll, give you, I'll give you something to ground this. Um, this is this is Anupam. I uh, only learnt about her existence three weeks ago. Um, Tomorrow is the second anniversary of her death. I met her father about 12 years ago in, in Bolivia. We became friends, and uh, a few years later, I visited him in his home country. I won't too much into that. I visited him in his home country, and I met his, his wife, and I met his daughter. And his daughter at that stage was exactly to his age. That's my daughter, about just over two. Um, but then, that was about seven years ago, and after that we kind of lost contact. Um, but then, a month ago, he emailed me in the and said, we're coming to Australia for a holiday, and we'd love to see you. I hadn't had any contact with him maybe about five years. And uh, I said, oh, that, that would be wonderful, it would be wonderful to see you. And then he sent me another email saying, uh, before we come, I need to tell you about what has happened for us in the last five years or so. And he told me the story of, of Anika. Um, I'm going to read a little bit of that email for you because it speaks much more powerful than I ever could of that experience for me. On July 9th, 2009, Anika, who again was at that stage exactly the same age as I did, threw up for the first time. From then on, a nightmare. First we thought it to be an upset stomach, or simply excitement. They were, they were just about to go overseas for um, a few years. Unfortunately, it wasn't. She started to sweat profusely, holding her head, suddenly being cross-eyed. To make a long, long, long story rather short, and sparing you all the details of which there are many. After three months of desperate search and examination, 
after examination without any result. In October, they finally found a broadly metastasized brain tumor. As strange as it may sound, at that particular moment, we were rather happy to finally have a diagnosis, to have an enemy to fight, before it was utterly, before it was utterly helpless. She was literally dying in front of our eyes, and we couldn't do anything about it. So we fought. It was horrendous, terrible, black, dark, tough, painful, sometimes bright, clear, full of light, always full of love and care and music and hope. The bravest of all was Anika herself. I've never seen such a strength and perseverance, such a placidness and serenity. She was resting on herself in a way I would never have thought imaginable, despite various chemotherapies, including two high-dose chemos that literally destroyed her blood system. Despite the fact that she lost her eyesight completely, she lost her ability to run, walk, and in the end, stand. She was the most impressive person I've ever had the luck to meet. I'm immensely proud to be her brother. I'm immensely happy that I had the chance to have her. At the same time, immensely, utterly, to an extent I wouldn't have thought possible at all that we had to let her go on July 23, 2007. Two years tomorrow. This was simply the saddest day of my entire life. I think this part is an atheist. And yet here, he writes about the sacred, about the heart of life. And I think, like Abraham, when we're confronted by a story like this, there are two ways that we can respond. We can hide from the full force of that story, from the full force of the dream. From the full force of the joy. We can hide like Job springs in simple pat explanations of why this may have happened, why God would allow it. And to me, to do that, which I think is what a lot of people that call themselves Christians do, to do that is to rest on an idol. Not on a living God, but on something that is safe, that we can control. Or, like Abraham, we can open ourselves up to the full, overwhelming weight of that experience. We can recognize that we don't bring God to that situation by things that we might say to them, but that God is already there. So those people, those people experience God in the way that she loved them, the way that she responded to her suffering, I think spoke to them of God. And there's something blasphemous about responding to people that have been through that experience by thinking, how can I 
how can I try to turn this into an evangelistic opportunity? I'm not saying that we don't bring Jesus to that experience. What I'm saying is that that God is already there. And if we do not, like Abram, seek to move away from the known and the safe, from what we can control, into the full, terrifying, radical nature of life and the living God, as we see in our experience, then we are clinging to idols. And we're not doing what Abram did, which is to leave behind everything that we know and understand move into the realm of, of the living God. Now, yeah. I'm going to pray and then uh, I'm going to invite questions or comments or anything that you want to clarify. Loving God, I thank you that in the death and resurrection of your Son, that you cover over all of our sin, you cover over all of our falling short. You know us. You know our weakness. And you know that all of us hold back at times from you. That all of us seek to lean on our own understanding. That all of us have Pharisees at times. Seeking power, seeking to prove our own wisdom believing ourselves superior to others. But I pray that all of us, like Abraham, might be empowered by your Spirit to continue every day, to leave our idols behind, and to follow you into the promised land. And I thank you that through your son's death, through the spirit of the emptiness that we can do it.